Hey everybody, this is Mike Joseph, host of the Detoxicity Podcast. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you, please subscribe, rate, and comment on this podcast wherever you're listening to it. You can find me on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. Reach out via DM with comments, or if you know someone who'd be good to feature on an episode, or if you yourself would like to be interviewed, you can also email me for that. I am at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Finally, just want to remind everybody to wear a mask and social distance. Please be kind to others and be kind to yourselves. Thanks for listening, and I hope you and yours stay and remain safe and healthy. In this episode of Detoxicity, I'm interviewing Kent Corrin. Kent, as is typical for a lot of my guests, does many things. He's an actor, a comedian, he's a voiceover artist, he's a radio host. He hosts a show called The Mothers of Connection, which is on Radio Free Brooklyn every Saturday at 9 a.m. and is devoted to the various tentacles of Frank Zappa. Uh, He is an advertising executive with a number of national campaigns under his belt. Our conversation covers the excitement of impending fatherhood. He's also uh, an expectant, well, now he's a real... uh, You know what I mean. Listen to the podcast. Anyway, uh, the unexpected loss of a job during a pandemic and a lot of potential hacks for navigating through the ups and downs of life, which we're all doing every day. I am proud to present a conversation with a great guy. Here's Kent. Hey, my name is Kent Corrin. I am uh, am many things. I'm a human being. I'm a man. And I am uh, a creator, I would say, at the top of the list. And under that creator umbrella for a living, I'm an advertising copywriter, creative director. And then to the right of that, I'm an actor. And to the right of that, I'm a writer. And all of those kind of work together. I'm also a voiceover artist and uh, host on Radio Free Brooklyn of the show Mothers of Connection. And just a consummate creator and, and writer of all things mostly uh, TV film, but also memoir type stuff as well. I've been in, I'm from Buffalo originally, Buffalo, New York. I'm proud of my, my roots and my football team is a big part of uh, our community. For some reason, it just seems to uh, permeate every, everything we did growing up. It was sort of like a backdrop for, for life and uh, excitement and uh, camaraderie. And then I, in, in high school, I, I discovered that I could do impressions of, of teachers and people. And I, and I went full swing into college and, and got into writing and acting and went out to LA and pursued a career in stand-up comedy alongside the likes of uh, Zach Galifianakis. It's just off the top of my head. Um, Retta, who's on... Parks and Rec? Yeah. Yeah. He's a buddy of mine for a while. I knew Craig Robinson for a little bit. So just like... To show you, like, I knew these guys when they were all hammering away. Those are just three to come to mind. The late, great Brody Stevens. Did you know him? Yes. Yes, indeed. That, that was one that I just still can't comprehend that he's gone. He was a, he was a great guy. I really liked Brody. So him as well. And then uh, after, you know, being in L.A. for about seven or eight years, I decided there's got to be a plan B. <laughs> So advertising seemed like it it housed all my skills as far as writing and branding and packaging of ideas. And I've had a nice career, uh, somewhat tumultuous, some highs, lows, but all of them, the highs outweigh the lows by far. Was being in the arts or writing always the plan? Were you always kind of a creative person? I, Mike, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live and that was that was it. 
That really? Was the, the only thing I knew that I really wanted. And, and when I got to LA, I realized there were 5,000 people that wanted the same thing. And I always said 5,000 really, I mean, really it was a small group of people that believe they can do that and think they're good enough. And there are plenty of people that think they're good enough and aren't. But, but even if they're not, the people will themselves and it's um, inspiring. And a lot of it's chance and a lot of it is um, just pure will and determination. So that was one thing I, I knew I wanted to do, but I didn't have any like formal acting training ever. And that was something that, that definitely over the years I've, I've gotten, which is, I think, essential. And just experience on stage. I didn't take the stage until I was 23 or 24. But stand-up is like, in a lot of ways, has taught me everything about presenting myself, selling an idea, ice breaking at a party or a work function, on Zoom even. I've hosted <laughs> a few like advertising kind of trivia things and, and, and promotional things. So it's it's a skill I, I'll uh, have forever and I'm, I'm glad I have it. Were you always an outgoing person or did you have to work towards being able to stand in front of a room and be funny or be engaging or be extroverted? I don't know what people thought of me. I, I felt incredibly shy up until about the age of I don't know, like seventh or eighth. It was around different groups. You know how like there's certain groups of people you you feel you can say anything that's fine. And then I was always sort of like intellectually intimidated by a certain group of friends. And so I was maybe quieter. Was um, it just like yeah. not thinking you were as smart as they were or? I didn't, maybe I didn't think I was as outgoing. And there was a group of people that were more charismatic that were just like seemed like five years more advanced than the people I went to high school with. <laughs> and those were my friends at summer camp. I'll just say that. Okay. And and they were they were just they were operating at a different speed. And I think maybe they were um, privy to more diversity, more worldly things. I don't know, but there was um, an awareness of the world that I, you know, and I liked that. But I was quieter because I just felt like I wasn't at that level, maybe. And it might have been my upbringing. I don't know. But I, but I was I was, I was pretty quiet. And then a combination of like watching Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman on SNL and going to school and just doing like an impression of a teacher and realizing, whoa, I'm stopping people in their tracks and they're looking at me differently and not as like class, like the fuck up, you know, not really class clown, but like, you know, I was a little bit of a, I don't know what I was, kind of missing topic. <laughs> like I wore a, club, a clash t-shirt that said cut the crap in sixth grade that I got in Toronto. I was always like, I was a music head back then. And I had to put it inside out because it said cut the crap. Uh, yeah. And I took it so personal that that sort of became my, my identity for a while. It wasn't like punk rock, but I was like, you know, had the hair that went over here, over the eye. And I kind of like did this intentionally. Like, <laughs> you know, I flipped the hair and I, I thought I was a badass. But then once I did started like making people laugh and you've heard this probably in every comedy documentary there's a certain rush and almost power to it that's intoxicating that's that hooks you and which is you know and then it's like the addiction and all that stuff but that was never for me it was just like I just felt like that was my place like everybody wants to be 
to find their place and wants to feel purposeful. And I, with comedy and with joking and, and, and cutting people up, breaking people up, I felt like that was my role. And I was going to maximize that. It wasn't like a crazy notion to go out to LA. Everybody told me I should be a comedian or stand up or do characters. So just listen to what, to what seemed to, but it's just a really hard road, really hard. Sure. A lot of people say that the funniest people are the saddest people internally. And I think, you know, there's a lot of cases you can think of that bear that out a little bit, but I'm sure there are also comedians out there who are very light, well-adjusted people. Are you in one camp or the other? Are you somewhere in the middle? Like, where would you put yourself in that? Like, what's your humor born out of? Yeah, it was a little bit of self-deprecating. Like, I always start with, I look in the mirror and I see this, or I'm just this. I never came at it political or, yeah, it was always about me and my place in the world and being open with who I thought I was. And yeah, it came from me. It was never like observation. It was never, did you ever notice? It was never that. Or, <laughs> or what's the deal with? Or, you know, Monica Lewinsky, what? You know, I didn't. So you were never Jay Leno is what you're trying to say, basically. Was never Jay Leno. I never did, never did OJ jokes. Um, or whatever. I really like acting better and comedic acting, more like a Jack Black or a, like, you know, you, sort of Steve Martin who started to stand up but then became sure. these great actors or Jim Carrey even. Like, I just think, I'm sure you know this from following the musicians we follow, like a Prince or a David Bowie. There's sometimes there's no genre. You either just are tuned in or you're not. You love it or you don't. And it doesn't matter what your style is. Like, sure, right. Adam Handler will find, he likes screwball. It works for him. But he's also got a great dramatic side. And he's must, he must be cool to work with because he works so much. But for me, I, I, I don't have like a genre. Like, I'll write something dark. I'll write a song. I just, I like to think of myself as just prolific as hell. That's why I'm so, you know, I'm a Frank, Frank Zappa fan. I just like that, that guy's undefinable and just, his own genre and i just i want to be my own genre there you go hey there's nothing wrong with having your own lane to stay in so what ended up bringing you back to new york after your time in la well i went to advertising school went back like i did a quick two-year program and it was clear to me that the bulk of the, the work was in new york city madison avenue and this is like mid 2000s, so it was still sort of thriving, but in very internet heavy at this point. Digital advertising was just starting to, to boom. And I just always felt like New York fit me better than LA, way better. And I'm from Buffalo, and those are two different worlds, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I love New York State. I went to the school in Ithaca and also Fredonia, and I've seen every like square inch of the state, and I, I really love the state. But I, I just always loved New York City, even as a kid. My mom said that I told her I when I was five that I was going to live there. And I just loved it. And, and miss it now, the uh, frenetic energy. It, it, as crazy and as it, um, exhausting as it can be, it's just, you know. You won't get it anywhere else. No, and I, hopefully it, it returns. We'll, we'll, we'll you see. Know, yeah, I, and I think it will. Now, one thing, you've, you've had a couple of recent 
life changes. One is that you about to be a daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that hit me hard this morning, actually, as I was um, hanging some pictures up and getting his room in order. It really hit me today of all. What's, how's the, what's the anticipation of that? This is your first kid, I assume. Yeah, it'd be the okay. first first kid. Um, Christine and I are expecting like could be any, any day actually, but hopefully not during this interview. <laughs> no, but that would be a good. <laughs> yeah, right. A good. It's that. I mean, there's times it can almost feel like the clock ticking, just waiting. But it's it's just a beautiful journey, just to think about and just. I just keep saying, I can't wait to meet this guy. I just want to know what he's, I just can't wait to meet him. <laughs> what he's going to look like, what his personality is going to be like. You know. Yeah. And there's a part of me that feels like all these experiences, even the ones I talked about, like going out to LA and up the ups and downs of just life and being, you know, working on myself all these years. And I guess I'm skewed older as a father. I'm in my forties. I feel like I'm ready. Like I don't, I'm not scared of it. That's awesome. And the other thing, I guess, is that you, uh, you've had some, some employment stuff happen in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, I, w- I was fortunate to work as long as I, as I did during this. So I will say, stay really busy and produce a commercial during COVID-19. And, and by produce, I mean, I actually sat on this couch right here while the director filmed a commercial in Australia. And we did all the casting and we did the music and I did the, we did the voiceover work. Oh, wow. It was pretty amazing, which was like, even then I remember thinking, wow, life, like we may never need to go to an office again because right. so many facets of, of my industry are able to take place remotely. So that said, yeah, cutbacks, I guess, are inevitable in this, in this time. And I worked for a major network. And uh, yeah, they, they let some people go. And uh, and that happened a couple weeks ago. And as you know, there's positives and negatives and to to it. My my industry is very up and down. There's a lot of turnover just in general because budget shift, the the media medium to which I work is constantly evolving or devolving in this sure. way. Sure. How are you feeling just kind of with the idea of I mean, I, I would imagine this is just me kind of speculating here, like you're about to have a kid. You're going to be able to kind of hang with them for a longer period of time than you would otherwise. No, I, I think this is amazing, actually, a gift in a lot of ways, because to for me to, I mean, we'll see once he arrives, but the notion of going to work and leaving the child home alone with my wife, like I said, we're not from here. We don't have like cousins and you know, people across the street to come. And now, you know, with COVID, now that we're not really supposed to be with anybody as well, it's a little little daunting. So I'm glad that I'll be able to be here, whether I'm working or not, I'll be able to be here for my wife, but also he'll be able to hear me more. And, he, and, he, and I like to think that the pregnancy has heard my voice more. You know, we'll see. I guess that's a thing that <laughs> it's good that they hear both parents that they're familiar with the voice. I play guitar in the morning so that he's familiar. We had three songs we were playing all the time. Blackbird, I think, by the Beatles. I can't remember the other ones. So no Zappa for the kid yet? No, I'm going to hold off on the Zappa. (laughs) I'm going to let him find my records. 
I'm not going to push that on anybody. <laughs> so, I mean, was it like, did it feel like an ego blow? Like, I, I've lost jobs before, and there's definitely a sense, I've had the sense that, like, shit, like, it's like, what am I going to do now? It, it definitely is kind of like a gut punch sometimes. Yeah, for me, Mike, the, the thing is, I no longer talk to these people that I talk to every single day. And while I knew they weren't my friends, really, they're still a part of my life. Sure. And, and now they're gone. <laughs> I mean, I literally, like, I have one guy texts me once in a while who's not on my team, who I didn't talk to. He's just a really nice guy. A couple guys actually reach out to me. But they got people on my team, maybe I didn't have that much in common with, but I thought they, this is where I come in, I think, God, they must be, they must be missing me, right? They, they, and I know that's probably not true, but for me, it's more, it's less about the gut punch and more about like, did they appreciate what I did? Like all that hard work. And now I'm sitting here um, just disassociated with the, with the work. You know, I see my commercial on TV and it's like, you know, it's, it's it, that for me to be disassociated from something that I was so close to, I don't know. It's, it just seems like I, I, I emotionally attach myself to my work. And I don't know if it's because I think you do with, with writing, even though it's commercial, you still have to write and there's a process of, yeah. you know, they, they say, oh, your idea is your baby. Like a lot of times it is and, and they disappear. Ideas are a beautiful thing. They just sort of emerge and you have to know when to harness them and hang on to them and, and present them. And uh, just to get to that commercial that we had, just telling you the process real quick, you know, five or six different campaigns were in the mix and five of those died and one of them is on TV. And obviously that one's been diluted a bit and shifted. Yeah, you got to tweak, tweak stuff. Tweaks. So it's never truly yours, but the biggest thing for me, I guess, is I'm not associated with the work I did. And it, it reminds me of like when, I don't know if you follow football, but like when quarterbacks are like a Cam Newton or somebody is like, they've given all their time or Peyton, they've given all their time to this team in this city. And they're like, yeah, your time's up. We're going with this new guy. It's like, what? Right. Yeah, exactly. You invest, you invest. so much of yourself into something. And then the thing, the entity that you invested into, they're just like, yeah, well, peace. And you're like, you know, like you take ownership yeah in something that you don't really own and 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 uh, often and i understand this but i emotionally i don't because it's like hey it's a business bottom line money and i'm like well then why'd you choose me out of a hundred people that to me is personal right right it's absolutely personal because there was something um, about you something about me that said i was it was time to go and the excuse wasn't i didn't even get an excuse other than a virus is the excuse right and that's even like harder to swallow a bit right i don't know and it's it's not the first time i've been uh laid off by any means <laughs> but it's 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 definitely it's a le you know it, it's a lesson and it's a character builder all that but it, but it, it doesn't lessen the blow and it doesn't not hurt and take time to mourn. And it was one of the things I was thinking about lately is that, I mean, the day it happened, I already started pounding out emails and I got an interview the next day. I got like a phone interview 
and and that's something but i didn't take the time to to sit with it and mourn kind of the loss of this thing right i mean and i feel like there should be some time to just i mean that is a I, I read these things periodically where they talk about like the stre the most stressful experiences in a person's life and losing a job is pretty high up there behind like losing a parent or losing a spouse, or, you know, like big, big life shit. So getting back on the horse is something that I guess is kind of commendable, but is also usually not feasible. Yeah. I just feel like it's like there's no time to hang your head and feel sorry for yourself because time's ticking, rent's still coming, bills are still coming, right. a child is still coming. Right. You know, and so what am I going to do? Right, right. So how do you how do you process? Because you've got that's a lot of shit to have on your plate right now. You know, dealing with suddenly being unemployed and you've got a kid coming and all this stuff. How do you process all of that and how do you take care of yourself and not like crumble into a corner in like the fetal position, like, holy shit, my life's changed, you know? Internally, that the there's probably a fetal position <laughs> deep down. I'm in a fetal position often. No, I, over the years, I've gotten better at just rebounding. You just have to. But I, I, this sounds kind of cliche, but you know, I've taken a lot of improv in my life. And I think it's helped me look at a situation and go, yes, and now what do we do? Like, you just have to go, this is a thing that happened, and now we do this. I don't know. I think, I think most people deal with it, like, just get back on the horse. But what do you do with all those feelings that are happening? And then if I start interviewing right away, and I've made this mistake before where I've started interviewing and been like, yeah, my last employer just, you know, and they could probably hear the shift in my voice. Sure. And they're probably like, whoa, this guy really hated that last employer. Why, why are we going to take him on if he, so I've just prepared myself to, I don't know. I just think I have, I think I have a lot to offer to a company or to a, so I'm not, I'm confident in that way. So I will sell myself with full, full confidence, but yeah, I, 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 there's, it just blows my mind that <laughs> I used to talk to these people every day, just socially on like chat. And now they're just like, they're not reaching out. And I did actually reach out to like a couple people and that's where I'm, you know, sensitive or whatever. But I, I, those things mean something to me. The relationships, they mean the most to me, actually. And that's an interesting thing to bring up because I don't know that men are necessarily taught to value relationships beyond the relationship they have with their spouse and the relationships they have with their immediate family. Everything else, I think to some guys just feels kind of transitory. Yeah, not me, man. Like I feel like I can actually feel the gap of time. If I, the, the guys or, you know, women that I'm close friends with, I can almost feel the gap and I go, and that's why I love texting because you can just be like, just check in. But yeah. I'm also a phone guy. I like to call. Oh, are you a phone guy? Oh, big time. Because you and I, I think are, I think we might actually be the exact same age. And I hate the, because you're, I mean, you're in your forties. So yeah. I, I, I'll, I can I'll even edit this out. How old are you? 
I just turned 46 last. Uh, okay, Friday. I'm a little I'm a little younger than you, so I'm 44. So right. yeah, same deal. Yeah, so I hate the phone, <laughs> <laughs> and I work in sales, so I have to. I mean, it's less now, but I, I used to have to use the phone all the time. And I just since I was a little kid, man, I just don't. Texting is a godsend because I don't have to speak to anybody. I can just. I'm a better I historically and I've gotten better at this because you know after doing the radio thing and the podcasting and the public speaking thing but I I've always felt that I'm much better at writing than I am at speaking yeah well then the digital age is for you yes <laughs> but the phone thing like no nobody if somebody calls me these days I assume it's an emergency yeah I I, I actually personally have not a problem with it but I I long for the days of just picking up the phone and just hearing, there's nothing like hearing a voice. You know, like one thing, even my dad, who we had a bit of a, I don't know, growing up, he never really, he didn't always know how, what I was feeling, but he could always hear my, he goes, I can hear in your voice, you got something going on, you're not doing good. And I, and I liked that he could hear that because when I would say things like, dad, I'm afraid of this, or I don't like this, or I don't know, think I'm going to find a job again. Or, I don't know what to do. He go, you'll be fine. But when he could hear it in my voice, then he actually would take it seriously and talk to me. Right. Um, same with my mom and, you know, anybody that I'm, I hope anybody that I'm close with could sense that. I think it's important. Also, I'm a character actor and a, and a voice guy. I, I, you know, I'm on the phone with my, one of my closest friends daily just do it like Christina my wife just yesterday was like, okay, so you guys just talked for 45 minutes about nothing and probably used our own speaking voice, maybe 10% of the, <laughs> so to me, that's just, you know, that's who I am. I enjoy that kind of like free form jazz conversation. Yeah. Like, like you know, let's see what happens. <laughs> and those can be fun. I, I you know, I don't know. There's just something about the phone that's I've, I've always been like, eh. and now when people are like, I call people, I'm always like, really? That's interesting to me because I listen to your radio show and you're, you're fantastic. Just keeping well, thank you. the, your thoughts going and, and, you know, not many much pause and nice like steady energy, but you know, some people don't have that like drop out and live with a mumble. And, right. Uh, I, I think, I used to be like, I used to be a pretty shy person. And I think there is a part of me that is still very like, like maybe afraid of people a little bit, even though that doesn't usually come across. But I think that's the thing that that makes me like phone phobic and, and, and all that stuff is just there's a part of me that used to be really, really shy. So and sometimes the shyness drives like guys like you and I to go and have a radio show or right. mails or present big ideas in front of lots of people and you know a lot of the comedians like Zach Galifianakis when I remember I had a, a beer with him Sam Adams at a bar called Largo after his set and he was so quiet but he was really nice but you know I mean, this guy is a maniac on, on right yeah I mean it's also kind of the dual persona thing where you know when I'm doing my show when I'm public speaking and all that stuff it's not like I'm playing a character per se but that there are differences between that person and the person that I am when I'm, you know, sitting at home in my underwear watching TV. Like they're, they're variations of the same person. 
but that person, that character is supposed to be outgoing. So therefore, you know, have no choice but to be outgoing. Yeah, I think there's a way to marry the two so that it's like a perfect storm of the two people, the afraid and the not so afraid, and then becomes you. Yeah, so. yeah, no, I think you're right. So I, what did you, like growing up, what did you sort of learn about what it, because it sounds like your dad was a, a guy who was pretty intuitive and actually discussed feelings to an extent, or at least discussed your feelings. You know, late, later in life, not, not so much as a kid, but in the last, like, we definitely got closer in the last, like, 15 years where he would, he would give me advice, like, just keep, stay the course, you know, kind of broken record stuff, but, like, I needed to hear it. And same with my mom. She'd say things like, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. And some, you just need to hear those things. But growing up, I don't know, I, I really turned to my friends for kind of, therapy and I mean I really relied on my friendships to pull me through and were your peers able to do that because I can't I mean thinking back to like when I was 13 I can't imagine like having a conversation with my friends about shit that was going on in my life and then being like oh we empathize <laughs> so I would turn to I had a lot of a lot of female friends in my teens and to this day but especially in my teens which wasn't normal it was like to have that many platonic friends and 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 i probably gravitated towards those friendships so that i could talk about my feelings because i had a lot of them <laughs> growing up and there was you know divorce at home and kind of strange things going on and, and, and just my own kind of gripping with how i felt i just always in tune with my feelings which is why the arts make sense you put them somewhere you put them mm -hmm through a filter of, of, of sorts. But yeah, I had these great friends, my friend Allison, who I still talk to since I, I mean, friends since like fifth grade. Wow. And I, yeah, like my friends, yeah, hang on to those. I just went for it, you know, I just said how I was feeling and I, I don't know what that, I didn't care what people thought of me, maybe thought, oh, that guy's an emotional wreck or, or what, but I, I remember even in fifth grade, I don't know, this just, <laughs> I had like, I guess what I had a girlfriend in, in fifth grade. In as much as anyone can have a girlfriend in fifth grade. Exactly. And I remember talking on the phone as much as anybody could have a phone conversation in fifth grade. And I remember being like, why do you like me? <laughs> I really wanted to know. Wow. You, like, and that's a heavy thing for a fifth grader to be like, I remember I was listening, to, I remember listening to U2 Under a Blood Red Sky which is a heavy album too for a fifth grader. I'm just a heavy kid, I guess. Yeah, you had a lot of emotions as a kid. I, I had a lot, of, a lot of emotions. And which is not like we're, you know, then I would hang out with like a group of guy friends. They'd be like, want to shoot hoops? I'm like, I don't know. You want to talk about like what it means to cry? I don't know. Um, I don't like, do you want to talk? Can I talk to you about like the fact that I want to move and not go to school anymore? And I'm thinking about, like someday I'm gonna go to, I remember telling a kid like, someday I'm gonna move to Japan and, I'm gonna st and, and that's it. And I'm gonna start my own company in Japan and you'll never hear from me. <laughs> like, I mean, Japan? I don't know. I must have seen the movie. <laughs> probably saw the movie Gung Ho or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I picked Japan. I guess I thought it had a good economy. 
but yeah, I mean, growing up, I, I can't imagine too many like teenage kids in like the late 80s, like, you know, wanting to have deep conversations with other kids. And I also feel like, you know, some kids would like hear shit like that and then be like, oh, this kid's a fag, like what's going on there? So I, it, yeah, because I wanted to have those conversations, but I certainly had no, I wasn't raised to have those conversations with anybody. So, you know, it took me a long time before I got to a point where I was able to have those kind of conversations with people. I, my, my male friends definitely didn't want to talk about that kind of stuff. And it was like, pussy. Right. You know. Can we talk about like comic books or, or you know, I don't know. Were like not cool. It was like from, it was all sports, man. Okay. And, and, and what college are you going to? That, I mean, that was it. So Jim Kelly in college. You remember those sweatshirts that were like all gray and they would just say like Michigan? Yeah. That was like the thing. It was like, oh, that guy's getting, he's going to Syracuse. It was all like, that was the identity. And I was just like, I identified with like Jim Morrison and uh, I don't know, Dana Carvey. Like I just wanted to be. Those are two very different people. Very, very different people. Well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I retreated to music and comedy and, and books and, and I wanted, I was just really drawn to all these, these people, you know, these artists. And that's where, I, that's who I wanted to be associated with. That's a very fearless quality to have, especially as a kid when, because I think so much of childhood on a peer level is based around wanting to be liked and accepted. So to kind of stand, to stand out purposefully feels like a really brave thing to do. Yeah, I'm really no different than I was in middle school in a lot of ways where I just like, I like the things I like. Uh, my role is to like make people laugh and, and lend an ear and, and be kind and care for my friendships and check in with my family. It's kind of who I am, but I, I definitely felt like the, I struggle with the male par- paradigm of okay. what it is to be a, a stern, male, strong figure. And I feel like your podcast is uh, definitely, you know, that's what you're trying to uncover a little bit, right? Yeah, because I have trouble with that archetype too. I mean, that's what I saw. Like, for me growing up, it was always kind of like the guys were either stern or violent or not, you know, not creative, not sensitive, not communicative, like all things that I value very, very much now and I valued then but couldn't articulate. Like there was nobody like that in my world back then. And I still think even though, you know, this is 40 years ago, 35, 30 years ago, I still think that's the case for a lot of people. And there's still these expectations in place that say like a man can't have feelings a man can't be confused about shit a man can't cry a man can't you know all this stuff that a guy can't do and I think that by saying that a man can't do that I mean not only is it reductive but I think men who abide by that end up just like screwed up somehow because you got to be in touch with your feelings you got to love people. You got to communicate with people. You got, in order to be a whole person, you got to have all these qualities. It's 100% why men lash out. 
right. go poof, right. Neanderthal knee-jerk reaction to go, take it outside, bro. You know, that, it's just a, it's a reflex or, a, you know, an instinct to skip like the, the seven rational levels of, okay, what's going on here? What's really going on here? Why am I, why do I want to kick this guy's ass? And I have them too. I like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I cross the street out in front of our house here and there's a, a crosswalk and I'm pretty sure the cars are supposed to stop until you get all the way across. I think that's a state law. That's a law. And they still just like, and I, with Christina's pregnant and, and very uh, clearly pregnant and they still keep going. They just are like, mm, I'm going to go right until, okay. And I do this thing. <laughs> Welcome to New York. And I basically become the guy that I'm making fun of where I'm like, the fuck? And I don't like that side of me either. And I know it's not <laughs> becoming to be like, what am I gonna do about it? Now I'm fired up, I'm pissed off, borderline embarrassing to be around doing this thing with my hands. And what am I gonna do? <laughs> Especially when nine out of 10 people have a gun. You know, that is a serious thing. So I, it's something I, I talk to, you know, my therapist and my wife about like just keeping it in check. And, and and how do you do that as a dude that's like supposed to be the protector and the, you know? It, it's, it is, it's instinct. I, you know, particularly as someone who grew up, like I grew up fighting, you know, I grew up thinking that violence would answer problems. And, you know, I haven't been in a fist fight since I was probably 21, 22 years old. But every now and then, like, I catch myself, you know, probably six months ago, I was out playing basketball. And, you know, this kid was just being really, really lippy. And I realized that I was, like, inching towards him. And, like, I'm ready to, like, crack this kid. And, and this dude, like, grabs me by the back of my jersey and just, like, pulls me back. And I was interesting the way I felt. Because part of me was like, well, I didn't know I could access that part of myself anymore. Yeah. And then another part of it was just like, okay, this is really fucking embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's not really cool to get aggressive. Right. Right. Um, and maybe it used to be. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a cultural thing. And, you know, I mean, I don't totally know what it is to be. I mean, I don't know at all what it is to be a white kid growing up in Buffalo. But, uh, you know, a black kid in Brooklyn in the late 80s and early 90s, like, you were throwing down and you were, you were angry and you were getting in fights. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like, it seems like a suburban, like white kids. And there was a good amount of fights regardless. And maybe even, I, I, I can't compare the two, obviously. But uh, like, Mike, I saw a lot of people being like, I'm going to fuck you up and like put a lock in a sock yep. and hit a guy for, no, for I don't know what reason. And bullshit reason, probably. Bullshit reasons. But there were fights, yeah, locker room shit, like it's sports, just testosterone flying across the room. Yeah, just, what'd you say? I I always do this, this character that, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna do this for you real quick. This one guy used to just go up to people and he would literally fart in his hand and throw it at you and see what I you did and go, what's up, dick? <laughs> and he'd be like, what am I, why am I, <laughs> why is this an obstacle right now? I got a guy throwing a fart in my face. He wants me to react. And and his three words are, what's up, dick? I'm trying to get uh, to class. I'm trying to navigate my, you know, prepubescent life. And now you got to deal with this dude throwing his fucking ass stink. 
who's taking his problems from home and bringing them to school and throwing them via farts. It's a very, there's an analogy or a, some symbolism there. Yeah, there is. That fart represents his, you know. Shitty family life. Shitty childhood. (laughs) You mentioned. And I I feel, but you know, I feel bad. I'm not to be like, but it's true, which is why things like therapy and teachers really talking to kids about what's going on at home are, I think are important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned therapy. Was there like an impetus for you to start therapy or were you just like, I'm an evolved man. I'm going to go see a therapist now because... Hell no. I, I wasn't even an evolved man. I knew I... Something told me I needed to talk to somebody about all the feelings I was having. It was... And this is at... I was a sophomore in college, actually. And no, I, nobody went to therapy. I only knew of it from Woody Allen movies. <laughs> and my therapist says, and it was like, oh, you got to be really... But I just started out... I also lost a, a friend in high school to, to suicide when I was a junior and it was probably the single most defining moment in my life because we were close in a way. But I, I just knew that I, I needed to protect myself. I needed, I knew that, I don't know. I just wanted help. I just wanted to, to talk. I wanted to get help. And I, and, and no parent or teacher was ever like, you should really talk to somebody. Nobody ever said that. I, I sought out the school, had a, had a therapist, this guy named Jay, and um, actually introduced me to Bruce Springsteen because he, he told me Bruce Springsteen suffered from depression, and I just couldn't wrap my head around that. And that's kind of a male thing, too, you know. He recently came out with a book, Born to Run, mm-hmm. whether you're a fan or not. Um, yeah, man, at the peak, you can listen to, listening to him actually read it is, is nice. It's nice. At the peak of, of his fame, he was dying inside. You know, he had, he's even had Patty, his wife, put him in a car and drive him to the doctor because he couldn't, you know, physically, you know, it's a, I, I love that he came out and said, these are, you know, Mr. America and a lot of right. Mr. Born in the USA, which is a protest song, which most People. Most people don't. It, the subtext, it's not even subtext, it's the actual text. Yeah, there's there. dudes at bar going, to kill the yellow man. Like, they're screaming it. Right. He's talking about how wrong Vietnam was and how he lost all his friends and, and how the country didn't care for... for Veterans the when they came back, yep. I mean, I, I heard that. I, I, how did he not hear those words and just go, yeah, born USA, that's where I was born. So, you know. Yep. I just, I don't have tolerance for unintelligent people it doesn't even come down to like education or intelligence it's like you're a person i don't know willful ignorance maybe ignorance yeah and and the other thing i I don't know if i've told you i i was the only jewish kid in my high school so and it was like well you just you know you don't really look whatever looking jewish meant or when it came down to it you're not wearing a yarmulke well, whatever people thought Jews are supposed to look look like, which is terrible. Right. I mean, that's like saying like what black people, I mean, yeah, you can't tell anybody what they're supposed to look like. Yeah. They're supposed to like, act like. And I heard, heard it from Jewish people saying, you don't, you're not really Jewish. And I, well, so, okay, so let's break that down. My my dad decided I was going to be raised Jewish. My mom isn't. And for what, and whatever writing teachings not technically Jewish, <laughs> but 
But I went to Hebrew school Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then I went to Sunday school Sundays. And I went to a Jewish summer camp, which is how I know Graham via Karen. And, and, and these people are like family to me. And, and, and the, the Jewish community has, has meant the world to me. So when I hear things or experience things like what happened in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, and, or just even not far from here during Hanukkah, someone was lighting menorah and got stabbed in there. You know, all this stuff is just, I don't know. It, it, it's an interesting exploration because, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy in America, I, I guess. I am. <laughs> you know. I, I clearly am, but then, you know, I have things like hearing Jew bag and Jew down and why doesn't your dad give you money for lunch and swastikas on my, on my notebooks when I would, I went up to the board to do a math problem and it came back and there was all these swastikas on my note, on my book cover and to this day, I don't know who did it. Yikes. And then going to the teachers and saying, Hey, listen, I'm uh, I feel like I'm, people are saying anti-Semitic things and the school not doing anything about it. And then talking to my friends about that and they can't, understand and you know when i see so you know i'm saying like there's an impression that i had to my brother and i were the only jewish kids in our high school there was somebody else who didn't practice and so i had to sort of like just take it that's Um, you know being othered being openly othered particularly as a young person has got to be like an incredibly just fucking fucked up experience. I mean, for, for what it's worth, like I, for better or for worse, you know, spent most of my childhood in an all black environment or a primarily black environment. So I was, I, I, I never really felt othered, at least in like an academic situation or anything like that. And I wasn't out uh, until my twenties. So even, you know, my academic experiences, and there were certainly kids who, you know, would throw, you know, again, like queer and fag around as a pejorative, but it didn't necessarily mean anything about my sexual orientation. They just thought that I was like, you know, a sissy or or whatever. So the feeling, I would certainly felt like I was othered internally because I knew what I was, but being othered by other kids like i don't think anyone ever wrote the n-word on a notebook you know of mine and and you know so that's as a kid that's got to be some really a really shitty experience a really demeaning and dehumanizing experience yeah. because being othered is an adult you know i also didn't talk that swastika experience i never did anything about it i just was like i mean i i I remember saying something to a teacher saying, you know, there's some anti-Semitic things going around and, and nobody was cared. You know, you just took it. But people would be like, God, corn, take it easy. What do you like? I remember one not too long ago was in the Lower East Side and a kid was wearing a Charles Manson shirt when he's, you know, he has that swastika. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can this, this is like 2012 or 13. I'd never thought we'd be in the, anti-Semitism would be so out in the open as it is now, but it makes sense. And, you know, leadership is everything. And this mm. is what I don't have to tell you that. But I was so affected by it. And my friends were just like, take it easy, man. What are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do about it? Like this, well, I don't want to be in a club, in a same bar or club as a guy that's got a swastika, whether it's Charles Manson or what, or, it's Seriously. or whatever. I don't want to be near it. 
It was kind of like that. Take it easy, man. Like, like, God, we get so worked up for it. It's like, it's not about you. It is about you. It's about me. <laughs> it is about you. Even if I, somebody's not walking up to your face and calling you a derogatory name, someone is walking in the world dehumanizing you and people like you. Yeah. And, you know, I... You would have every right to be offended. And I think there's a thing where it's like, okay, you know, I, I wrestle with, oh, I'm sensitive or I, I must be emotional. Oh, but I'm an artist, so that makes sense. Like all that shit, you know? And I, 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 I don't want to pawn off how I feel on, well, I was born in July, you know, like, or a child of divorce. Or no, I, I think I'm an in tune person that wants things to change and cannot believe they're not. I mean, I can now that I'm, we're seeing what we're seeing and I'm doing my uh, research, I'm doing more reading on, on just societal things and historical things. And well, it makes perfect sense actually. I mean, this whole country is full of corruption. And, 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 and the fact that there are so many people like myself and you and like Graham and like people that are like in tune and wanted you, I mean, the majority of the people I know are what I would say with it. We're, we're in a Not bubble, bro. Aware. We're in a bubble. Yeah. yeah. We're in the big time bubble. And I think if we went a couple, a few hours, I mean, even if we go a few hours north to, you know, parts of northern New York, we'll go to Maine. You know, Maine, one yeah. of only one of only two places in this country that I've ever actually seen a Confederate flag up close. It was Jacksonville, Florida and Portland, Maine. You've never you you hadn't seen a Confederate flag? I saw, yeah. We in saw one driving person. through uh, Cooperstown the other day. Really? Well, yeah. now people are a lot more open about this shit. This was a few years. I mean, the Florida thing was probably 12 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago. The main thing was maybe like seven or eight years ago. I mean, this is two weeks ago we saw this thing. That's insane. In New York City? or oh, upstate New York, like the Cooperstown area. Okay. Like not far, not, I mean, listen, man, I'm in Westchester. It's not. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, here. yeah. I mean, you can go to parts of Queens. And, and yeah. you know, I was talking on another uh, podcast about, I forget the name of the neighborhood now, Maspeth, like places in Queens or parts of Long Island where, you know, that are, are very, very conservative Republican and, you know, see a Confederate flag in New York. It's kind of like, hey, you know, we actually won the war, you know? Like, you know, like, what yep. the fuck are y'all doing? But it is interesting to be in this political time and see how people are reacting on, on all sides of the equation. I mean, on one side, it's great that a lot of people are finally starting to get with the program and understand things like white privilege and empathizing with people who have different experiences. I mean, I can certainly say that there has been progress. But on the other hand, there's people who are just so dug in to their way of thinking and so unexposed to people that are not like them that it's just really hard to, to move the needle. And I feel like a lot of the people that are moving the needle at the moment are either women or queer people. And I think, you know, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it was started by two women. 
if you look at, you know, some of the most visible faces, you know, DeRay McKeeson is a queer black guy. You know, a lot of the people that are, of course, you know, the people that are fighting for women's rights and queer rights are going to be women and queer people. But even the people who are very vocal about everything else, whether it be trans rights, anti-Semitism, everything else, you see very few, very few heterosexual men. White and I men. wonder why that is. Especially white men. Yes, especially white men. Yeah, I, it was one of the things I sort of wanted to bring up was, yeah, it's like all my friends that are women are just screaming it. Obviously social media, which I believe is one way. We have to get involved other ways, action and get involved in, you know, there's a million ways. But why white men aren't coming out, and this is like, top of the chain like a Tom Brady or people like that like come out like Drew Brees he said his true feelings and he got called out on it yeah he said that he didn't under, he still didn't get what Kaepernick was doing it was not disrespecting the country it was standing up for <laughs> the rights of black people right they're but, either not they're either not coming out in support or they're coming out in support of the wrong Thing. Like I just, I was on social media this morning and the first thing I saw was a picture of Brett Favre golfing with Donald Trump this morning or last night or something like that. It was oh. just kind of like, oh, come on, dude. Yeah, it's a come on, dude. Yeah, there's a lot of come on, dude. But, not but, 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 but. <laughs> I, what, was, what was the original thing I was, I was driving at though? Uh, uh, just white men particularly yeah. uh, straight white men or straight they, identified white white men, men don't want it don't want to get involved they don't want to talk about it and i think it's like a hey take it easy like to bring it full circle in this conversation hey man take it easy what are you so worked up about jeez that shit's gonna work itself out no it ain't oh it's not gonna fucking work itself <laughs> it's not working itself out you dumb mother you know i mean it, it infuriates me it, we we've got it everyone's accountable why, why me, when, when I get involved and I start saying things or have a conversation, it's take it easy. No, right. I don't right. want to take it easy. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, my personal opinion is that, again, like straight identified white men need to be the most vocal because okay. they're the ones that have the ability to talk to people who are like them, who are causing these problems in the first place. Like, you know, if I say something, I'm an angry black guy. If you say something, you can't. Yeah, but I'm also like, in, I think I'm also like kind of a pussy and, and, and maybe a little crazy. And, uh, and you know, I, I was told I was pushing my own agenda and I was like, what, truth and equality is a, the wrong agenda? Or I'm just sensitive or... I don't know, people are sensitive like it's a bad thing to be. And I think for a, for a white male, it's a sign of weakness. And so when I talk to my friends that are clearly going through shit that they need to talk to somebody about, they do not want to go to therapy because that's weakness. And that's, and they don't want to hear some, well, no, no, dude, no, God, no person's going to tell me like how I should feel, whatever. I'll work it out. Like I'll just hit the gym, you know, like therapy is, is, is so important and it's got such a stigma to this day, I think. I, I think like pop culture has sort of made it, or maybe 
the bubble that we live in in New York, it's more common to be like, I'm at my therapist, I'll call you later. Yeah, uh, in New, yeah, in bigger cities and amongst like a certain group of people, but even in like minority communities, it is not considered, you know, it's considered not taboo, but you know, just it's not something that gets spoken of a lot. Yeah, it's figure it out. Yeah. And you can't figure out feelings sometimes. And you can't figure out clinical depression either. Right. Because it's clinical, because it's, it's- Or uh, anxiety or uh, bipolar disorder or you know, anger issues or whatever. You gotta go deep and you gotta get a different perspective. Yep. You gotta, like I had this therapist would be like, it's where it's, you see it this way, you think this guy doesn't like you. What if you go and sit in another part of the room and you see it over here? It's like, it's where you're sitting in the room. And I always held on to that. Like, I see it this way. I feel like this guy thinks I'm a pussy because I'm speaking out. Well, let me go see it over here. Oh, he thinks that because he's afraid. He doesn't really want to, he doesn't want to talk about that because it brings up his own issues or right. something like that. Right. And that's absolutely what it is. That is absolutely what it is. So what's, what's next for Kent Corn besides a baby? I got my writer's group at, at uh, five o'clock <laughs> look forward to. That's been a, a oh, cool, positive thing. I, want, I wanted to ask like what, you know, you'd mentioned like memoir type stuff. What are, what are you doing in that realm? Well, I had before this lockdown, I had this one person show that I thought was like, would be a, kind of my um, signature piece in that it was a, I get to do all these characters, but also it was called, so it was called Wide Right. And it was about my dad, had a stroke about two years ago and he could only move the right side of his body. And I thought this, this notion or this umbrella idea of wide right speaks to a lot of different parts of my life. And it covered anti-Semitism, depression, also friends that have come out and how straight men kind of don't know how to take that and how to keep those friendships going. Like in high school when somebody would come out didn't happen often, but be like, oh, he's not our friend anymore, maybe. Like, that, that should happen in sports, too, you know? Right. So I thought I was like, oh, I thought I, I, I and I, and I did. I have this thing written, and I was, about February 28th, I think I did a, a dry run of it with this director I was working with, and then this shit happened. Shit just went and, crazy. And shit went crazy, and I, I don't even think about it, which is kind of sad. So, I don't know, I would like, in my writer's group, we talk about like, I, I, I've created some other things. I don't know what's next, Mike, creatively, because I don't think the world knows wh what is next creatively. But I know that I will always adapt with it and I'm already thinking and always thinking of ideas. In fact, my wife was like, why does this always have to be a big idea? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd be like, what if, you know, I'm trying to crack the code with sports right now and think about how do we pipe in how do we make it feel like we're there you know i'm already one idea i'm i i don't know i have a million things virtual reality kent well i think there should be like an oculus rip kind of thing where you're there and you pay for that to be at the game and 50 yard line you know you pay for the actual seat right you put and you get the oculus rip and you go and you 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 stream the game that way there's got to be some science that allows for that to happen yeah but i, I want to be part of it so what's next for me man is just like i just keep creating putting stuff out talk to friends i 
one thing that I'll end on this, if you'd like, sure. you know, with not just Black Lives Matter, but all the things that are happening, the way men, you know, speak to or treat women and Congress that just happened with Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. that, that guy, I mean, I heard that he resigned recently from his like Christian. Yeah, his Christian groupers. And I read that earlier today. I mean, even that's, a, I think, a step in the right direction. Maybe. I don't know. It's a, it's a baby step. Like, I can't, it's, baby it's so step. hard for me to award like progress points for shit like that. Because it's like, yeah. shouldn't have even said that in the first fucking place. But, you know. I mean, it wasn't even a slip of tongue. I mean, it no. was in front of the media and in front of her mom. And, and also, one thing, while I was listening to her rebuttal, you know, I've, I can't say I've felt like her. I've definitely not. I'm not going to say I've felt like but I, I've had men, men get in my face who think that they're tougher or stronger or more firm and tell me that I'm nothing, piece of shit. You know, I've, and that, that's been, even in, 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 when I was in second grade, I had a teacher lift me up by my hair and tell me to be quiet. And I never spoke about it until like recently. Oh, shit. And I was afraid of like these big burly dudes ever since, you know, coaches and to this day to a, a recent interaction. These like kind of big, strong, like, and I know they're not strong, actually. They just look, look like they might be. Right. Big like meathead looking dudes. Meathead dudes I don't jive with. Yeah. I, and I do have friends that are like intellectual, intellectual kind of meatheads. Yes. You know those types? That yes. Like, I'm friends with a couple of those. Yeah, they're like, and, and I've had other friends be like, why are you hanging with those guys? I'm like, they're actually cool, but they, you know, they do the thing you know, whatever it is, the media. Yeah. I, 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 I have lots of different types of friends. It's being a pain in the uh, what, was I, what was I ending on? Yeah. Uh, no, so I'll tell you. So I, I wrestle with what am I going to do? Am I going to keep reposting social media things? And yes, we have to. But also, it has to be offline, big time, offline. And one of the things I've been trying to get involved with this company, I won't say because... I'll wait until I'm actually doing, but I'm going to be mentoring. It's a four-year commitment of mentoring creatives in lower-income areas and uh, promoting diversity in industries, in my industry. My industry is, really needs it big time, advertising. So you, you're not just going to go and like fill up the industry with diversity you have to start because there isn't much because it that particular group wasn't privy to creative type like advertising and business yeah. and certain things yeah not only is it a lack of resources it's a lack of knowledge that this thing even exists that it even exists and they this group that I'll, I'll tell you later that is doing this gives a group of people that create a product and 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 see it through through marketing and development and digital and it's really cool I and mean, it's like you know a group of like five or six kids of all walks of life here in Bronx and Yonkers I think are the schools and I'll come in normally I would have I'd actually go there but this will actually allow me to do it more I'll digitally get on a zoom and I'll help them and, and mentor one-on-one -on -one, make help them and so and develop hopefully these long-term relationships that I can help them find their way in this industry and, 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 and believe that, that they can, 
be a part of this industry and change it. That's awesome. Different voices, a hundred percent. Not, I mean, just needs. You watch an ad and you're like, people don't talk like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Same type of people are are the same type of people are are talking to themselves, and, or they think they people talk like that, or I don't know. So it's really important. And I've mentored a few people before that are now successful in this industry that didn't go to advertising school that just had the interest and the gumption to, to do it. So I feel like more people need to do that. To need to, we need to usher in diversity into our in, immediate industry, whatever it is. It's, it's, and I don't know, I hope, I'm assuming you agree with that. I 100% agree with that. But like the, the, the postings of all the stuff is, is essential, but it's also, yeah. It's important. We're also reaching people that already think like that. So we're just right. like talking to ourselves. Right. And right. then people that do think like they're not going to budge too much. So we have to start, you know, younger, obviously, I think. So, yeah. I, I, don't... Think it's, I think it's in the hope for me anyway, that people who already think like that then approach their people who don't think like that with some, you know, qualitative information from someone that they know. You know, you know, I was uh, talking to a friend yesterday and I recorded that conversation. It was kind of like what really needs to happen, I think, in order to make to make change. There are a lot of things that need to happen. But one thing I think that needs to happen is you can't give passes to your loved ones that are not on the right side here. You can't say, oh, well, we had a disagreement. We'll agree to disagree, whatever. For white people in particular, it has to be OK. Your politics are fucked up we can't interact anymore or you know yeah. you can't see your grandkid anymore or you know something like that because people need to feel consequences right. otherwise they're just gonna it's gonna be a volley back and forth it's gonna be a tennis match yeah we can't tiptoe around it right just be like well he's from that town and that's how they are and it's from and it's a religious thing right and we can't pass it off on that anymore right because you know when people are taking or dehumanizing other people like it's not a friendly it's not a difference of opinion it's like fucked up <laughs> yeah like that senator that said that shit to, to ocasio-cortez has two daughters and a wife right does he think they're fucking bitches i don't probably i don't yeah mean, i mean i'm pretty sure he's yeah, mumbled fucking sure he does. Breath to his wife at some point and you know yeah. if he's gonna say to a total stranger well not a total stranger but to a co-worker in public. Yeah, and, it, and it's up to guys like me to go to guys like that. Fix your shit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, my, and, but the question is how do we stop these guys? Not like, hey, let's step outside. It's like, I don't know, we have to strategically make sure these people are held accountable or removed yeah. from every position little by little. I and agree. I think. I think it's ha I think it has happened a lot in the last four years with the Me Too movement, and, but it's a long way to go. And I just I'm navigating my own, trying to figure out how I can get involved. And there's a lot of pressure amongst I think, and I get this from like my white female friends that are like, if you're not posting 20 times a day, on you know, and it, it's like if you post something that's you know not it's trivial, right? 
about the movement and I'm right. like well that's I mean I you know I mean white women are also part of the problem so I mean I I I, I, I don't know that that's who you should necessarily be receiving instruction from in, in terms of particularly like right. the matters that have to do with race. But I, 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 the people that I'm concerned about are the people that don't post at all. Like if you are capable of ignoring this, then something's wrong. Yeah, and you can sort of see in their feeds where it's just like another, like another great day out in, in, on the boat. Right. Oh, like a beach day or a bike day, or here's my dog. And it's like, where yeah, have you been for the past two months? It, yeah. It, I guess you can weave those those in between. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's just, I was saying the other day, like social media, with, now that we're all so separate from each other, it's a, it's a way of life. Especially for guys like you and I that are promoting things we do, like we have, right. to, we have to do it. Right. Thank you, Kent. I really appreciate you taking part in this. Uh, and thanks for the great and honest conversation. If you're listening, you'll be happy to know that since we recorded this interview, Kent has become the father to a healthy baby boy. So congrats to you, Kent. Uh, Hope you're enjoying your time with your kid. As a reminder, Kent hosts Mothers of Connection on Radio Free Brooklyn every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can find more of his work at kentcorin.com. That is K-E-N-T-K-O-R-E-N.com. And there is also kentcorinactor.com. So uh, one site for his advertising stuff and one site for his acting stuff. And Mothers of Connection is also on Instagram, and you can find them at Shock Horror Mothers of Connection. (laughs) This episode's charity of choice is Feeding America. Did you know that due to the coronavirus pandemic, 50 million people may face hunger in the U.S. during 2020, including more than 17 million children? It's really important that we make sure that all Americans, people worldwide, are fed and healthy. Uh, If you would like to donate to feedingamerica.org, which is an organization that works to end hunger, you can donate at feedingamerica.org. Once again, that is feedingamerica.org. They are also looking for volunteers, so make sure you go onto their website. Once again, that's feedingamerica.org. And if you have the time and capacity, feel free to volunteer. And of course, I'll remind you again to please subscribe, rate, leave a comment. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, it is much appreciated and only helps our mission get out to more and more people. And uh, make sure you follow me on social media. I am on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. And I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. If you have an idea for a theme or a guest, or if you yourself want to be on the show, you can reach me via either of those social media platforms, or you can, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Once again, I am Mike Joseph. This is the Detoxicity Podcast. I wish you continued safety and health for you and yours. Till next time. Peace, y'all. The Detoxicity Podcast is hosted and produced by Mike Joseph. Music provided by Calvin Williams. Logo provided by Jacob Block. I want to thank y'all for listening again. Peace. <laughs>